Mac Folklore Radio, read by Derek. And now, some of my favorite short stories to keep you company while you're stuck indoors. Folklore.org, written by Andy Hertzfeld. I'll Be Your Best Friend, August 1979. Toward the end of my first week as an Apple employee in August 1979, I noticed that someone had left a black binder on my desk with a handwritten title that read, Apple II, Principles of Operation. It contained a brilliant, concise description of how the Apple II hardware worked, reverently explaining details of Waz's epic creative design hacks in a clearer fashion than I'd ever read before. I didn't know who left it there, but the title page said it was written by Burl C. Smith. Later in the afternoon, I was approached by a young, animated, slightly nervous guy with long, straight, blonde hair who entered my cubicle and walked right up to me. Are you Andy Hertzfeld? Wow, it's amazing to meet you. I read your articles and call APPLE and Dr. Dobbs. Apple's lucky they got you to work here. I want to shake your hand. With exaggerated formality, he extended his right arm stiffly, almost in a parody of a handshake offer. I'm Burl, Burl Carver-Smith. Pleased to meet you. I wrote that manual I left on your desk, he said, pointing to the black binder. We shook hands, and then he suddenly turned around nervously and darted off without explanation. See you later, he said, without looking back. My cubicle in Bandley 1 was in the hardware engineering section, since my first project was writing the firmware for the Silentype thermal printer. It was across the aisle from Wendell Sanders' office. Wendell was the designer of the Apple III and an extremely brilliant and seasoned engineer who used to design RAM chips for Fairchild and understood the Apple II hardware design inside out. All the other hardware engineers on the team, except for Waz, usually came to Wendell for advice. I began to notice that Burl, even though he was supposed to be working in the service department, in a different building, often hung around outside of Wendell's office, sometimes for hours at a time, waiting for Wendell to have a free moment so he could ask him to verify his latest insight about the Apple II timings. Sometimes, when Wendell was busy, he would try the insight out on me instead, or discuss a fine point of the Apple II firmware. Soon, we started to, occasionally, go out for lunch together. The first time we went to lunch, I found out that Burl's creativity extended beyond his engineering work. He would often try to convince our waitress to concoct variations of the standard fare on the menu, thinking of something different every time. For example, after he successfully persuaded a waitress to divide his pizza toppings into thirds, he asked her to do fifths the next time. Or he would sometimes try to order mixed sodas as if they were cocktails in ever-varying proportions, like three-quarters Coke and one-quarter Sprite. Often, the waitress would balk, but Burl was sometimes charming enough to eventually convince her to comply. He would also obsess on certain foods, becoming fixated on Bulgarian beef sandwiches from Vivi's for a while, and then a pineapple pizza phase, evolving to his most enduring favorite, sushi, 
which provided a new range of interesting choices and combinations. Burl also had a distinctive way of expressing himself, applying technical jargon to ordinary life, like a situation that was metastable or someone being a state machine, mixed with a dash of baby talk, like adding plurals to people's names. An attractive woman was referred to as a good prototype, or a good proto for short. Burl had a great sense of humor and periodically performed hilarious impressions of everyone else on the team, caricaturing their personality quirks with an incisive phrase or nickname. He also liked to make fun of various programming language conventions. For example, if he was pleased with new software, he'd say, Happiness, software. One of his favorite expressions was, I'll be your best friend. He offered best friendship for a wide range of activities, like making some change in the software for him or getting him a Coke from the gas station. Best friendship takes place, he would declare, if pleased with the results. He also had a habit of reducing things to initials, like BFR for best friendship relationship. Once, right after Burl conferred best friendship upon me, I heard him offer best friendship to someone else for a different favor. Wait a second, I challenged Burl. How can you give out best friendship to someone else? There can be only one best friend at a time, can't there? Burl had a quick reply, delivered with a smile. Of course there can be only one best friend at a given instant of time, but best friendship relationships may be highly dynamic. The average length of a best friendship is 3 to 5 milliseconds, so there's no problem in having a new BFR a second or two later. Folklore.org, written by Andy Hertzfeld We'll see about that. November 1979 Burl Smith was a 23-year-old self-taught engineer without a college degree who was drawn to Apple by the sheer elegance of the Apple II design. He was hired in February 1979, employee number 282, a lowly service technician responsible for fixing broken Apple IIs that were sometimes returned by customers. As he debugged broken logic boards, sometimes more than a dozen in a single day, he began to develop a profound respect and empathy for Steve Wozniak's unique creative design techniques. Meanwhile, the Lisa team had been writing their first code in Pascal running on Apple IIs because the Lisa hardware wasn't ready yet. They had been at it for almost a year, and they had written more code than would fit in the 64 kilobytes of memory in a standard Apple II. In fact, the Apple II had only 48 kilobytes on its main board, but it used a language card to give it an extra 16 kilobytes used to run Pascal. To accomplish this, the language card had to bank switch its RAM over the ROM on the Apple II motherboard. Bill Atkinson was the main programmer for both the Apple II Pascal system as well as the Lisa. He was in the service department picking up some extra language cards when Burl heard him lamenting about overflowing the Apple II's memory limitations. Well, why don't you add more memory to the language card, Burl suggested. Bill was intrigued, but he complained, you can't add any more memory because we're out of address space. 64K is the limit of what we can address. 
Burl had already thought of that. Well, the language card is already bank-switching the RAM, even double-banking the last 4K where Applesoft Basic is. We'll just make it bank-switch another bank. Bill was enthusiastic, so Burl built him a prototype, while Bill modified the Pascal runtime to support the extra bank-switching. It worked like a charm, so soon Burl was busy manufacturing 80K language cards for all the Lisa programmers. Around this time, Bill ran into Jeff Raskin. Jeff had been writing a series of papers about a consumer-oriented computer that would be extremely inexpensive and radically easy to use. He was ready to start building a hardware prototype, so he was looking for a talented hardware designer who could pull off his vision of a brutally simple, ultra-low-cost machine. I've got someone you ought to meet, Bill told Jeff. He made arrangements to bring Burl to Jeff's house in Cupertino over the weekend. Bill and Burl showed up at Jeff's house at the appointed time. Bill introduced Burl to Jeff, saying, Jeff, this is Burl. He's the guy who's going to design your Macintosh for you. We'll see about that, Jeff replied. We'll see about that. Folklore.org Written by Andy Hertzfeld Pineapple Pizza, May 1981 When I began working on the Macintosh project in February 1981, there was still only a single 68,000 Macintosh prototype in existence, the initial digital board that was wire-wrapped by Burl himself. It was now sitting in the corner of Bud Tribble's office, on one of his empty desks, attached to a small 7-inch monitor. When powered up, the code in the boot ROM filled the screen with the word HELLO in a tiny lowercase font, rendered crisply on the distinctive black-on-white display. Dan Kotke and Brian Howard were already busy wire-wrapping more prototype boards, carefully following Burl's drawings. In a week or so, I received the second prototype for my office, so I could work on the low-level I.O. routines, interfacing the disk and keyboard, while Bud worked on the mouse driver and porting Bill's graphics routines. The next big step for the hardware was to lay out a printed circuit board. We recruited Colette Askeland, the best PC board layout technician in the company, from the Apple II group. Burl spent a week or two working intensely with Colette, who used a specialized CAD machine located in Bandley 3 to input the topology and route the signals, eventually outputting a tape containing all the information needed to fabricate the boards. Burl and Brian Howard checked and rechecked the layout, which was tediously expressed as thousands of node connections, and after a day or two, they decided they were ready to send it out for fabrication. We were hoping to get the first sample boards back before the weekend, but it looked like they weren't going to make it. Finally, around 4.30 p.m. on a Friday afternoon, they arrived. Burl figured that it would take at least two or three hours to assemble a board, and then even longer to troubleshoot the inevitable mistakes, so it was too late to try to get one working that evening. Maybe they would come in on Saturday to get started, or maybe they'd wait until Monday morning. While they were discussing this, Steve Jobs strolled into the hardware lab, excited as usual. Hey, I heard that the PC boards finally arrived. Are they going to work? When will you have one working? 
Burl explained that the boards had just arrived and that it would take at least a couple of hours to assemble one, so they were thinking about whether to start tomorrow morning or wait until Monday. Monday? Are you kidding? replied Steve. It's your PC board, Burl. Don't you want to see if it works tonight? I'll tell you what. If you can get it to work this evening, I'll take you and anyone else who sticks around out for pineapple pizza. Steve knew that pineapple pizzas had recently replaced Bulgarian beef as Burl's current food obsession, which, as a staunch vegetarian, he thought was a positive development, and that Burl wanted a pineapple pizza pretty much every chance he could get. Burl looked at Brian Howard and shrugged. Okay, we may as well give it a shot now, but I don't think we'll be able to get it working before the restaurants close. So Burl and Brian got busy, selecting a board and stuffing it with sockets, carefully soldering them in place, while five or six of the rest of us, including Steve, sat around and kibitzed. Burl seemed a little tense and impatient, since he didn't like the pressure of bringing up a board in front of so many spectators. Every five minutes or so, he referred to the awaiting pineapple pizza, speculating about how good it was going to taste. Finally, around eight or so, the board was assembled enough to try to power it on for the first time. The prototype was hooked up to an Apple II power supply and a small monitor, and fired up as we held our breath. The screen should have been filled with hellos, but instead, all that was there was a checkerboard pattern. We were all disappointed, except for Burl. That's not too bad, he commented. It means the RAM and video generation are more or less working. The processor isn't resetting, but it looks like we're pretty close. He turned to look directly at Steve. But I'm too hungry to keep working. I think it's time for some pineapple pizza. Steve smiled and agreed that it was good enough for the first night, and it was time to celebrate. The seven or eight of us who stayed late drove in three cars to Burl's favorite Italian restaurant, Frankie, Johnny, and Luigi's in Mountain View, ordering three large pineapple pizzas, which tasted great. Colette Askeland did an enjoyable interview with the Drop Three Inches Apple Three podcast, Episode 7. Check the show notes for the link. The other thing that I ended up with, uh, uncanny talent of looking at somebody else's work and seeing problems almost immediately. It used to drive everyone crazy, but when I would, I could go in and look at their layout and I could see that they had a short. And, I, and even the people who were, whose job it was to double check, they couldn't sure. see them. And I would just pick up on it. And I think it was just a lot of it was because of that density of that design and having looked at it for so long and being able to, I don't know, dream about a solution with just all of that just came full circle. And you're so impressionable when you're in your 20s. According to what is purportedly Colette's LinkedIn profile, she did PCB design, mechanical design, and related work at Apple for an astounding 20 years, leaving in 1999. She spent the next 15 years at Cadence. Yes, that Cadence, one of the largest electronic design automation companies in the known universe. Thanks for tuning in. You can find more stories at www.macfolkloreradio.com or you can gab at me about old Mac stuff anytime by sending email to Derek, that's D-E-R-E-K, at macfolkloreradio.com. I really appreciate your reviews on iTunes.